Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do here is we take a piece of pop culture and we show how either really or accidentally there's some real history going on underneath the surface. And boy, have I picked a big one this time round because you aren't going to get something more pop culture than Gundam. And that means, of course, we're going to be having to talk about 19th century naval exploits and, of course, 20th century tank technology, but also an awful lot about Mobile Suit Gundam and the world of anime and novels and toys and manga and everything to do with this juggernaut of Japanese pop culture. So I really hope you enjoy this one. It's going to be something quite different this time round. So let's start at the beginning. Gundam is one of these things where it's so well known. It's, it's, it's a little bit like something like Star Wars. You don't even have to have seen Star Wars to know that if somebody says you're a Yoda, it means that you're a wise leader or something like that. And it's interesting in Steven Spielberg's movie Ready Player One, which probably has more Easter eggs of more pop culture than anything else ever made and also it's a good film a whole virtual universe in it in one of the pinnacle bits at the end we've got not only a mecha godzilla but we've also got a mobile suit gundam happening as well so there it is gundams in there amongst all the bajillion other pop culture references that exist in ready player one be it the shining come play with us or Robert Zemeckis, be it Akira, whatever. There you go, Gundam's in there just like everything else. However, if you're sitting there going, I know the word and I get Jem, it's a giant robot, but that's all I know. You talking to me? Don't worry, I've got ya. (laughs) I will help you in this quest. So let's go into the world of mecha and anime and manga and all this kind of good stuff. So Gundam is not the first giant robot program, okay? We can go all the way back to Ogon Bat in 1931, which was turned into an anime in 1967. That's the very first one that doesn't just have a big giant robot running around the place, 
but it actually is manned by somebody. In other words, before Ongbat, every single big giant stompy robot out there was an automaton, a genuinely a robot. But this was the first time they were saying, actually, it could carry somebody, a bit like a tank, for example. But the first time the person inside the robot was the hero was the incredibly cool named Atomic Power Android, which came out in 1948. But basically everything up until Gundam in 1979, that's the start of Gundam, we'll come into go into that in a lot more depth later on, but pretty much up until that you've got all these, in essence, Japanese superheroes, which they are larger than life, quite literally. They are mechanized, they're sort of like part human, part robot, or they're just super powerful. And they, like something like Superman, kind of had unlimited energy levels. And whenever they needed to get out of a situation, lo and behold, they had a new weapon to, to seal the deal and, and get them away. They were super fantastical. Now, for the record, a mech is super fantastical anyway. The point here is that they they were almost godlike powers, superhero type powers. And therefore, what the idea behind Gundam was, was to appeal to a slightly older audience. Things like, you know, Ongbat and other such types of programs would have appealed to younger Japanese kids. So let's say from the ages of like six to 12, something like that. But the idea with Gundam was to actually appeal to the teens. So the ones that have kind of fed up with just the big giant robot that can do everything at any time, whenever it's convenient, and just wanted perhaps a slightly more grit I mean, let's face it, I remember when my kids were really super little, I explained the plot of Alien. This thing bled acid, who knows what it's gonna do when it's dead. Absolutely age appropriate to the six-year-old and four-year-old I was talking to them. So I, I seem to remember saying something along the lines of, so there they were, these people on a spaceship, and they bring on board a naughty alien egg. And this naughty alien egg, oh, it jumps onto somebody's face. And they went, oh, that's not very nice. And then, then they sat down and ate dinner. And then an alien popped out of the person's stomach and ran away. And everybody tried to chase it. And if you explain it like that, that's absolutely age appropriate for all. If you show them the movie, you're a terrible human being because a four-year-old and six-year-old should not be seeing alien, okay? I'm just saying. So basically, you can take any story and you can either adult it up or child it down, if you like, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But quite often you get these things where everything's sort of in a rut. We're sort of seeing it at the moment with superhero movies. The very first Deadpool, when it came out... I, I never carry water while I'm working. Ruins the lines of my suit. Oh. They found it almost impossible to actually get any money to make it happen. They basically had to leak the sort of test footage to get Fox to give them any kind of money. And then it was a huge, huge hit on obviously a very low budget. It was making more money than some of the Marvel movies and it was being made at a tenth of the cost. Of course we're going to do a Deadpool 2, but this led to other grittier R-rated superhero movies, be it something like the Wolverine one. What kind of monster are you? The Wolverine. Or Logan. This is what life looks like. A home. People love each other. And more recently, The Suicide Squad. And so, yeah, so people realise that, you know what, not everything has to be 
a super colourful, friendly, family-friendly, fair like a Marvel film, it can be grittier. Then you get to the sort of absolute pinnacle of this, Joker, which is in essence a comic book version of Taxi Driver and King of Comedy as well, as well. Both of those are clearly very heavy influences on this movie. And yet it's a modern movie, not something from the 1970s. It's starring a comic book character. And then Joaquin Phoenix wins an Best Actor Oscar for it. It's cost something like 20 25 million dollars to make and it grossed very slightly more than the Star Wars movie that came out about the same time as it. Now, obviously, the Star Wars movie is going to cost like $250 million to make and plus all the marketing and advertising on it as well. So by comparison, the Joker was ridiculously profitable. Is it just me or is it getting crazier out there? So, yeah, there's now this whole genre of yeah, kids, you're not allowed to see these superhero movies. And that's basically what Gundam is, which is a bit surprising because you're sitting there going, hang on, it's quite colourful. Because the creator is Yoshiyuki Tomino. And what he wanted to do was basically create a more realistic mecha giant robot type program. And around that, there was this sort of tension because he basically wanted to create a real robot experience. So it's like, look, if we genuinely are using giant robots the way that we would use tanks or aircraft, then I would like these people to be in realistic situation. And I want this to, in essence, be an anti-war anime series. It's an incredibly brave and, and interesting idea. However, it wasn't helped with the original name, which was Freedom Fighter Gunboy. Yeah, that, that's not going to work. So basically, they came up with the idea of the Gundam itself, the mech suit. Is it so advanced and so powerful, it's almost like the Cold War mutually assured destruction thing, in the sense that this thing outclasses everything else there is out there, so it will create peace. It is a weapon that creates peace. So what they did was they originally got the word gun, because it's armed with a gun, and mix it with the word freedom. So you got gun dom. But then they said, well, oh, it's almost like it's holding back the war, like a dam, which is now where you get the word Gundam from. Okay, so that's how you spell it. G-U-N-D-A-M. Gundam. However, despite all this sort of desire to be serious and a bit more teen level. The people behind it obviously wanted to make toys because giant robot toys sell well. So they demanded that Gundam wasn't, say, in perhaps a drab green or maybe with splashes of camouflage over it, which would have been completely appropriate and would have made it look far more realistic. But instead, it's sort of white with these bright primary colors of like yellow and blue and red, obviously, because they knew that would look... And chrome, lots of chrome, clearly. This is a terrible form of camouflage. But then again, if it is fighting largely in space, does it really matter anyway? Distances are so far, but perhaps something a bit more appropriate like black might be useful. But ultimately, the toy manufacturers win. They got their way, and so that's why Gundam is so vividly coloured. And everything was set for its release in 1979, and it came out and it was really well respected. People instantly got that this was something different. This wasn't the kind of silly, unlimited power 
of these other robots. This was, first of all, the universe that it's set in. This is in the universal calendar time of 79. And in it, you basically got fighting between the Earth Federation and the outer planets, which are called the Principality of Zeon. They were originally colonies by Earth, but they've broken away and become independent, and now we're into a warlike scenario. Zeon are, in essence, the bad guys, although over the many years and iterations we've seen things from the Zeon point of view and even alternate universe differences etc. I'm talking about the original Gundam where the Gundam is attributed as the RX-78 Gundam okay as opposed to any other ones out there and basically people got that well unlike these other sort of super robot shows the reason why this is like a real robot show or realistic sort of like mecha show is because the Gundam would run out of energy and need refueling and ammunition would run low it just in other words just like anything would, that would happen in a real situation this sort of arms race type scenario even if you've got the best technology it still needs to have logistical supplies and other kind of slightly boring things out there 60 miles per gallon my average so far over 5.1 miles has gone up to 50. That was being mentioned in this show. Of course, it could create more dramatic tensions, like, my guns are out of ammunition. How am I going to defeat the evil Char? It was the scenario was everybody's ready to launch the Gundam. Then they get attacked by Zeon uh, and, you know, everybody dies. But there's a young teenage boy who's able to sort of sneak into this is this is now the template for everything. And the fact is no Gundam. You get no battle tech no Evangelion, etc. You know, this is where you get this whole point of a slightly more militaristic society, slightly more realistic settings, more realistic sort of scenarios with these mechs, even though mechs themselves are ridiculous. And quite often you've got like the teenage, you know, you can't be a six-year-old, that's ridiculous, but a teenage boy, which obviously the viewers can relate to, now getting into the suit and doing their best to sort of like help save the day, but making mistakes as they go along. So his name is Amaro. He's the hero, and if you like, if there is a main villain, there's Char, who's from the Xeon side. I'm explaining all this stuff. If you know what I'm talking about, yes, it's more complicated than that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, hey, this is, this is the clip notes, okay, people? So, it launched in 1979. And it ran for about 43 episodes. Yes, that's right, 43 episodes. And then it got canned. We were canceled? Yes, I'm afraid the brainless drones who run the delivery network canceled our license. Because the toys weren't selling and the viewership numbers were terrible. Whereas if you like the connoisseurs of these types of TV shows recognize this is something new, this is something good, this is something more mature. It was still basically on the slots for which all the 10 year olds would watch. And it's like, well, this is a bit dark. This is a bit gloomy. This is potentially there are some episodes that are a bit boring. I'm not going to buy those toys. I'm not going to ask dad for those kinds of toys. No, no, no. It basically sunk. Gundam in every possible way, in the hearts and souls were poured into it and it flopped. Oops. But then Bandai picked it up. Bandai recognized they're onto something here. This is this could be an entire new genre. And the thing about these toys that were coming out in the late 70s and early 80s, which had sort of like posability and things like that, is they were really expensive. So you had to really want it to have that to be your main birthday present or something like that. And Gundam at this point hadn't reached there. So what Bandai specialized in 
is kits, like plastic kits, model kits. So, you know, there's DNA going from here all the way to stuff like Warhammer and, and so on and so forth. Although one of the critical differences were some of these early kits you had to paint, but nowadays they actually come pre-painted. Each panel, if you like, is the correct colour, so all you have to do is carefully clip it out and glue it together. Sometimes you're even able to pose them in different ways. But the model kit market in Japan is huge compared to the model kit market in, let's say, America or Britain or France. Again, if you're going to talk about model kits in those areas, then Games Workshop with Warhammer will be number one. And it is worth pointing out that the Games Workshop now is worth a little over well, 3.2 billion. It's, it was last valued at, which makes it worth slightly more than the British retailer that's been around for over 100 years, Marks and Spencers, for heaven's sake. So that's selling quite a few kits too. But in each individual country, I'm going to say none of them are going to add up to the sheer amount of model kits that you get just in Japan. But of course, the Japanese ones don't necessarily spread beyond there. But it's absolutely huge. And to give you an idea, we are now at, you know, from 1979 to 2020, they have managed to generate more than $5 billion just from like model kit and toy sales alone. So Bandai, first of all, changed the price point entry into this world. The models are cheaper than toys. Also, they're aimed at slightly older people anyway, because six-year-olds are probably not going to be allowed to muck around with plastic glue and clippers and things like that. The second thing that Bandai did was re-release the TV show at a slightly later time slot, and it now caught on. They recognized they needed to play to that market rather than play to the old market, which was completely wrong for Gundam. So it was run again and popularity really ramped up. And then in 1981 and 1982, they basically took those 43 episodes, edited them down heavily with a little bit of extra material added to sort of make it all hang together. And it was turned into a trilogy of movies. And when the first one was launched in 1981, there was almost a riot on its opening night. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And indeed, this is referred to as the night anime changed. Because before this point, Yes, anime was hugely popular on TV, but it wasn't really something that got a lot of cinemas full. Most people recognise that if you are going to see an anime version of something in the cinema, it's probably a few episodes stitched together. But with this particular property, Gundam just excited people enough that, you know, these hardcore fans came out in their thousands. There are reports from newspapers of the time about how the police were sent out because they were worried that, that this might turn violent. Although the fact that these people were basically model makers sitting there watching anime all the time, I very much doubt that that was ever actually a risk. But I, I digress a little bit on that. However, the point was, huge box office. Same with number two, same with number three. And now, it ignites. To give you an idea, you can do the mathematics on this, all right? 1979 was basically 42, 43 years ago, depending on when you hear this. There have been 50 TV series from this. So that's more than one a year, plus the movies, plus the video games, and just thousands of different types of products. Lunch boxes, models, now there's new toys of course, all kinds of things. Cassette players back in the 80s, the list goes on and on and on. Indeed, there's been multiple rides in Japan, Gundam themed rides, and to this day, there is in the city that sort of manufactures a lot of the toys, they actually have a life-size Gundam, basically in, if you can imagine like American rockets from the Apollo era, they were always sort of like cradled inside these sort of like frames, and then they trundled out to be manufactured, and then they were trundled out, and then they would launch on the launch pad. And so it's the same thing with Gundams, they're kind of kept in these sort of frames where everyone can get to them and do the maintenance and so on and so forth. So there's this life-size Gundam that is in a frame and it has enough technology inside it and maneuverability that this thing can walk forwards and can kneel, I believe, and move its arms around and heads around and spray out some sort of CO2 sort of gas as well. And I think sort of it's got some lights as well. I would like to see that. That would look seriously impressive. And that's got to be one of the coolest uses of animatronics ever, okay? But that is the level... You know, Disney have not done that with Mickey Mouse. Universal have not done that with Transformers, okay? I am Optimus Prime. And yet, there we are in Japan, and that's how big Gundam is. Wow. I mean, even in Pacific Rim 2, there's a little nod to Pacific Rim is basically giant robots, but it's sort of a more realistic version, just like Gundam. And there is this little statue of a Gundam in Pacific Rim 2 that gets sort of smashed up in the big fight in it. It is happening in Japan, obviously, as well. So that's going on too. Oh, for the record, 
Pacific Rim 2 is not very good. And ironically, it was sort of appealing more to the children, whereas Pacific Rim, the original one, was just slightly more, you know, more like Gundam in terms of the tween target audience. Although I thoroughly enjoyed it, so did the boys as well. But interestingly, my boys weren't so impressed by Pacific Rim 2. So I think I've done quite a lot there about the world. You know, so Gundam changed anime. No, Gundam and these sort of like big theatrical releases. Again, that's probably going to mean that there might never have been an Akira or Ghost in the Shell or some of these other ones. I mean, maybe they would have happened anyway. They were in sort of different genres. No mecha in them. But Gundam is an important part of pop culture DNA in Japan and is sort of cult pop culture for the rest of the world fascinating stuff really telling you that but let's now go into as i said it's a sort of anti-war vibe to it it's not jingoistic in any way and interestingly japan does have quite a lot of that sort of stuff unsurprisingly after the very heavy cost that they paid in world war ii they've been a little bit sketchy about warfare ever since and indeed japan Japan standing army is absolutely tiny and whenever it's been involved in, in UN actions it's never been with frontline military personnel but more with things like logistics and medical aid as well in places like it be it Afghanistan, the Balkans, Iraq etc. So Japan has very much changed its tune in, in the world of militarism particularly compared to a hundred years ago. So that's basically an important point to make that you know culturally Gundam is showing you the future of Japan, how they, you know, they love science and these sort of like giant robots. Whereas in interestingly in Europe and America, science is all often quite scary. Think Jurassic Park, for example, it all goes wrong. When we have control again. You never had control, that's the illusion. I was overwhelmed by the power of this place, but I made a mistake too. I didn't have enough respect for that power and it's out now. Think Terminator, the robots aren't the good guys. Whereas in Japan, hey, the bigger the robot, the stompier the robot, the more likely it's gonna be driven by a teenage boy with some floppy hair, etc. I mean, the other thing to think about just briefly for a moment are, again, this is sort of like the more ridiculous side of the robots, the more magical superhero-y side is if you think about things like Power Rangers. And, you know, how the robots can merge into other robots or like Voltron, for example. All of these are sort of like interconnected, but those are clearly aimed at a younger audience and more fantastical. But they're the good guys, not the bad guys. Going back to my episode on Wild Wild West, you have basically a huge mecha armored multi-legged things, big giant spider thing. And it's very much driven by the bad guy. That is an important point to be made sort of culturally. And there is a lot of Japanese culture, which is about turning your back on, on violence and war. And whereas we might get some gung-ho World War II movies or something like even like Sharp from the Napoleonic era, that's less popular in Japan. Although obviously they'll have lots of samurai type fun action adventure stuff. Let's put that to one side for a moment. There's the culture side that I think we've got to talk about. Oh, by the way, it is worth just saying, always, if you can, please click subscribe. Please click download or automatically download. This helps our numbers and I appreciate that. Thank you very much. If you could give us a review, that would also be cool. Tell somebody about us as well. You know, say hi to me on Twitter. I'm at Jem Deducci on Twitter. And, you know, every Tuesday I sort of like tweet out some fun stuff about the upcoming episode or the episode that's just been launched. And feel free to retweet it, please. The more you can spread the love, the more it'll help this channel to grow. And I thank you for that. 
So I did mention earlier about the US Civil War. And what's interesting is if we're gonna talk about armor, of course there's individual human armor, but when we're talking about vehicular armor, the first vehicles really, I know somebody's going to sort of say, hang on, there were some medieval chariots that sort of like very cleverly puts like sheet, uh, sheets of metal around the edges of it and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, fine, but you've got to recognize that was not a common appearance on the fields of battle. But in the US Civil War, weirdly, at the same time, and clearly not because one side nicked it from the other, you have the Confederates and the Union simultaneously creating these things called Ironsides. And the weird thing about them is they were very low profile. And up until then, ships were wooden. But with these particular ships is they were sort of coal powered, so they had a steam engine inside them. I guess we're on the edges basically of steampunk here, people, because at the time this was huge innovation. They weren't the first steam engined ships, but that plus metal cladding, metal armament around the top of them and having cannons protruding from slits on this thing. It really is the ship version of a tank, although these were pretty big. And on a couple of times, these gunboats. Now, the thing about them is I've had a few people say, see, they're way ahead of the Royal Navy. It's like, look, in the 1860s, the Royal Navy ruled the waves, as the song goes. And they spread as far as Australia and South Africa. And America had no kind of reach like that. And the other thing about these ships that they created for the war is if they did try to sail them across the Atlantic, they would sink. They were not suitable for deep sea cross oceanic expeditions. They were designed basically as gun platforms to go along the coast or up rivers. They were shallow drafts that so they could go up rivers, but it meant that they would have been fundamentally unstable on the high seas. Also with all that weight of cannons and also the armor would have meant that they would almost invariably have capsized if they went into deep sea water. But they served their purpose. And indeed, there was one famous occasion where two of them, one from the Confederacy and one from the North, actually met and did battle. And they, they just couldn't beat each other. Yes, I mean, I'm aware that one of them slunk off afterwards. But the thing is, though, they both fired as much as they possibly could and they caused minimal damage to each other. And that proved that they were extremely well built for the job that they'd been built for. Because you could imagine that something like that being anchored near a river crossing, firing on enemy soldiers and an enemy army, not a lot you can do to knock it out. You'd have to be very accurate with your cannon fire. Of course, the other thing is that this thing, unlike a, a fortress, can actually cut its anchor and then now it's a moving target, which for a 19th century cannon is almost impossible to hit. They were a genius invention and they were a sign to the rest of the world because prior to 1860, ships were still being built wooden. After the 1860s, we start getting into this sort of famous arms race, particularly between the Royal Navy of Britain and Germany. They weren't the only ones. France was absolutely involved in this too. But now the game was on to try and build large scale battleships and battleship was a term used in the age of sail as well. But now they were being large scale battleships built of steel. You shut my battleship. Built actually of metal, 
driven by steam. And throughout the late 19th century, these ships got bigger. Their gun turrets got bigger. Their engines became more powerful until we get to the legendary HMS Dreadnought, which I don't want to get sort of like too technical here, but basically it was a redesign. These things, these other ships were a bit sluggish and slow, and also their armaments weren't necessarily positioned in the right way. You might see some famous ships from the very late 1800s where they've got sort of like cannons on the sides. And it's like, you know, and they can kind of pivot out a little bit like a World War I tank, but that's kind of useless because you can only ever fire from one side or the other. Whereas HMS Dreadnought specifically only had turrets. So in other words, in any direction, it could fire. It was revolutionary design. It was faster. It was better armored. It was better armed. It just meant everything else was obsolete. The sheer irony of this is the, the Dreadnought came out a few years before World War I, and yet by the end of World War I, it itself had become basically a dinosaur, a thing of the past. It briefly saw service in World War I, but it was actually not a key part of the Royal Navy. But it would been talked about for 10 years like it was cutting edge technology, but it was. But in the meantime, of course, the British evolved their own design and everybody else was desperate to try and catch up. The irony is, of course, that by the time you get to World War II, you do get pocket battleships like Bismarck and the Tirpitz from Germany, which cause huge damage right at the, particularly Bismarck, right at the beginning of World War II. But the Bismarck had its steering knocked out by a swordfish, which was uh, really a World War I design type airplane. It's a biplane which hung a torpedo underneath its body. The pilot was out in the elements. It was way behind the design of something like a Spitfire. And yet one of those rubbish old obsolete aircraft managed to cripple the Bismarck, which now was only able to sail in circles, and then the Royal Navy went in and took it out. And actually Churchill said that he was waiting for the Bismarck to be taken out before he put Britain onto basically rationing. So I mean, that, that that's a sort of like hugely important moment. And, and indeed, you get to the Battle of Midway a year or two later, and that's the first time that two naval groups fight a battle, but never see each other because it's Japanese aircraft and their aircraft carriers versus the American aircraft carriers. And this is where we start seeing that this age of armor on the ships is kind of being made redundant by aircraft. And interestingly, it's the same thing with tanks. So the tanks of World War I were basically designed to, of course, cause damage against the enemy, but also to allow the infantry to walk in behind them. The reason why they were so long and covered in tracks as opposed to wheels, armoured cars had been invented earlier, but this allowed them to grind through the mud, over and through the barbed wire, and of course over the trenches as well. By the time we get to the Spanish Civil War, just before World War II, we're seeing tanks in a different way. And, and what's interesting is that the Germans had managed to work out that actually if you combine arms, so if you have air support for your tanks with things like the Stuka dive bomber, plus the tanks, plus infantry, there's just nowhere to get round that. Whereas particularly in the invasion of France, France actually had more tanks than Germany, but because they only stuck them together with no infantry or air support, the Germans were able to take them out relatively easily. A tank isn't invulnerable. It cannot have equally thick armor all the way around it. So generally, 
in the rear is a good place to hit it or if somehow you could let off a mine underneath it it's got very thin armor there so that would be an example of how you could perhaps debilitate a tank tanks aren't invulnerable of course there's the legendary tiger tank of world war ii but again they were so expensive to produce they were simply outproduced by the inferior sherman tank and five sherman tanks could probably take down one tiger also that's a lot of targets for the tiger to try and hit in the middle of a battle as well as one german general once said there is a certain quality with quantity and that's true also a lot of the german tanks were very fiddly to make and they were being made by slave labor which weren't obviously hoping the germans would win the war either so there were all kinds of productive problems there which is obviously a good thing the war that personifies tanks is world war ii but even in world war ii like with the ships you do get times where like in the famous battle of the bulge when the allied aircraft couldn't fly they couldn't sort of knock out any of these armored convoys as soon as the mist and cloud lifted they could help support the beleaguered forces that were being assaulted in the ardennes and that's where it went sort of further on. If you like, the absolute death of the mystique of tanks was in the first Gulf War in 1991, where basically, and again, in the words of a, an American general this time round, we were able to fight against an enemy that had less of everything. And this was an example of a conventional war. So, you know, if you, ha you there's nowhere to hide in the, something like an Iraqi desert. So you know, the US tanks were using depleted uranium shells, which which caused their own problems, but were very good at cutting open the Iraqi armor. But then on top of that, you had the A-10 tank buster airplanes and you had Apache helicopters and all of the, this air power just tore to pieces the Iraqi armor. So armor is not the solution to everything. Mobility is important, hence mobile suit Gundam. And this is why, sadly, we will never see a mech on the battlefield because those legs are spindly. And with modern day missiles and rockets, you take out one of those legs, the whole thing comes crashing down. It is much better to have your gun platform, which is basically what a tank is, much lower down to the ground. It has a lower profile, which is very important in warfare and sort of, you know, avoid being shot. And so, yeah, that's really, really important. And, and therefore, so yeah, mechs are ridiculous in and of themselves. Tanks still have their uses, but they are, they don't have the same insta glamour that they had 50 60 years ago but yes they're, they're still important but i have heard people argue why are we spending money on things like abrams tanks because let's be honest we probably need more helicopters more agility more firepower you know more more able to duck in and out of the of the battlefield and obviously you can see it from above with drones etc so yeah it might be that the era of armor is over i'll leave you with that thought as always, thanks very much for listening and hopefully see you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.